Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, Section 28. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 11. The Faso Thal and the Fadaha Pass, Part 2. And now, in rich contrast to the pallid Dolomites soaring high in the distance, the famous porphyry of the Fasalthal begins to break out in crimson patches among the lower hills, and to appear in the cliff-walls that border the Avisio far below. Yonder, where the stream takes a sudden bend, two isolated porphyry pillars jut out on either side, forming a natural portal through which the narrowed waters push impetuously. A little farther still, and a whole mountain-side of the precious marble, quarried terrace above terrace, and apparently of inexhaustible richness, is laid bare to view. Now we recross the stream and pass through the village of Soraga. Here everything except the grass and the trees is crimson. The ploughed fields are crimson, the mud underfoot is crimson, the little torrent hurrying down the ravine by the roadside is crimson, the very puddles are crimson also. Even the roads are mended with porphyry, and great blocks of it lie piled by the wayside, waiting for the hammer of the stone-breaker. The sky, which has all day been murky, now seems to be coming down lower and lower, like a heavy grey curtain. The air grows chill. A cold, leaden tint spreads over the landscape, and the long, dull road seems to grow longer and duller the farther we follow it. At length we come in sight of Vigo, a village clustered high upon a hillside to the left, backed by lofty slopes of fir forest, down which the gathering mists are creeping fast. A steep path leads up to the village, whence, looking over to the northeast, where the horizon is still clear, we catch a momentary endwise glimpse of the marmolata. And now we are overtaken by a smiling lad with a bunch of wild strawberries in his hat, who turns out to be young Rizzi, son of old Rizzi, who keeps the albergo up here at Vigo, a large, dark, dreary house, the entrance to which lies through a filthy cart-shed and up a staircase that looks as if it had not been scrubbed for the last half-century. Here we are received by the landlord's daughter, a fat, bouncing, rosy-cheeked damsel of inexhaustible activity and good humour, who does her best to make us welcome. The inn, however, proves to be quite full, with the exception of one big treble-bedded room with windows looking to east and north, and a ceiling about seven feet from the floor and we are fortunate to secure even this, for before we have been half an hour in possession of it, there arrives a party of Germans, hungry, noisy mountaineers, regularly got up for work, with ropes, ice hatchets, and hobnailed boots, for whom beds have to be made out on the landing. A chill, drizzly evening, a supper irregularly served, and boisterous neighbors in the adjoining rooms, caused us, perhaps unjustly, to take a dislike to Vigo. The house, too, was full of foul smells, and a manure-heap in the cow-yard under one of our windows did not help to improve the atmosphere. So when morning came, bringing a sea of white mist that extinguished all the mountain-tops, we decided to start for home as quickly as possible. In vain the fat maiden represented that to-day it would surely rain, and that if we only delayed till to-morrow we should be certain of magnificent views and splendid weather. In vain she exhausted her eloquence to prove the absurdity of our attacking the Fadaha Pass in mist and rain. We did not believe that it was going to be wet, 
we knew we could take the Fadaha again from Caprile any day we chose, and we were determined to go home. So by half-past six a.m., behold us on the road again, delighted to get away from Vigo, and hoping for a tolerable day. It is a sweet, fresh morning. The vapors are rolling and rising, the clouds parting, and gray gleams of sunshine gliding now and then across the hillsides. But the mountain-tops continue to be veiled in masses of soft white haze, and only thrust a tusk out here and there. Confident, however, of fine weather, we laugh the fat maiden to scorn, and ride on our way, exulting. The valley now grows in beauty at every turn. At Mazin we come upon a picturesque hamlet with a background of ravine and waterfall, and approaching Campidello, look out anxiously for the strange dolomite peaks that overhang the village. The mist is thick, but there they are, gleaming gray and ghost-like. Here, too, is the little albergo against which we have been warned by Dr. Reinhardt of Munich. It looks rather pretty, but the sight of two extremely dirty and ill-favored dwarves, a man and a woman, who come out upon the balcony to stare at the travelers, quite confirms us in the satisfaction with which we ride past the house. A little higher up the valley we reach the villages of Greece and Canazi, and stopping only for a few minutes at Canazi to feed and water the mules, push on rapidly for the Fadaha. Still the scenery continues to increase in beauty. On the hillsides are corn slopes, woods, and pastures. In the valley a rushing stream babbles among the tamarisk trees and pines. Soon a fine pyramidal mountain, black and precipitous on the one side, sheeted with snow on the other, comes into sight at the head of an opening valley to the right. We take it at first for the Marmolata, but it proves to be the Monte Vernale, a less lofty but far more difficult mountain, still unascended, and calculated at 9,845 feet in height. Now the path turns off to the left, threading the two miserable hamlets of Alba and Peña, and rising rapidly through a grand rocky gorge, which gets finer and more savage the higher it climbs. Steep precipices shut it out on the one hand, and barren slopes battlemented with jagged rocks upon the other. The Avisio, here a mere thread of torrent, foams from rock to rock in innumerable tiny cascades. Wide-spreading firs and larches make a green roof overhead, and the path is carpeted with fragrant spines, upon which the mules tread noiselessly. Presently we come in sight of a fine waterfall that, issuing from a fissure in the face of the great cliff to the right, descends in two bold leaps and vanishes amid the depths of the fir-forest below. The gorge now closes in nearer and steeper, our upward path being indicated by the giddy windings of a little handrail, which scales the face of a huge rock straight ahead. It is here too steep and slippery for riding, so we dismount and walk. Alas! the fat maiden was right, after all. The mist which has been lightly drifting in our faces for the last half-hour now sets in with a will, and becomes a steady pour. Drenched and silent, we toil up the stony path and wish ourselves back at Vigo. An hour hence, says Clementi, we shall come to some chalets and cattle-sheds, but there is no hospice to look forward to here, as on many other passes. By and by, however, where the climb attains its worst pitch of steepness and slipperiness, we pass a succession of little carved and colored stazione, nailed at short intervals against the rock, for the benefit of such pious souls as may care to say a few aves by the way, 
and these lead to a tiny chapel not much bigger than a sentry-box, into which we are thankful to creep for temporary shelter. A wretched crucifixion by some village artist, a few faded wildflowers in a broken mug, and a multitude of votive hearts, arms, legs, eyes, and so forth, in tinsel and colored wax, decorate the little altar, while securely embedded in a niche in the wall, chained, padlocked, and iron-bound, there stands a small coffer with a slit in the lid for the reception of stray soldi. Here, glad of even a few minutes' respite from the pitiless deluge without, we wring the rain from our dripping garments, and divide with the men what we have left of bread and wine, not forgetting the wet and melancholy mules who receive a lump of bread apiece, and are comforted by L with bits of sugar. It is still pouring when we go on again, and it continues to pour steadily. For full another hour we keep on under these pleasant circumstances, always on foot, and then quite suddenly find ourselves close under the western end of the Marmolata. Invisible till this moment, it now looms out all at once in startling proximity. A great blue wrinkled glacier, reaching down out of the mist like a terrible hand, grasps the grey rock overhead, while beyond and above it a vast field of stainless snow slopes up into the clouds, without sign of end or limit. Turning from this grand spectacle to the rocky shelf we have just reached, we find ourselves in a garden of wildflowers. There were none in the gorge below, none by the path-side coming up, but here they are beautiful and abundant, as if fair Irene had lately passed this way, the flowers following in her track, as she had sowed them with her odorous foot. Wetter than wet through one can hardly be, so we dispatch Clementi up the rock to fetch some bunches of the rare, white, velvety edelweiss, while we quickly gather such lower plants as grow within easy reach. Thus, in the pelting rain, we secure some specimens of the Orobus lutens, Dryas octopatella, Primula farinosa, Pinguicula grandifora, Sinantium vincitoxicum, Orchis nigra, and etc., and etc., besides several varieties of cyclamen, gentians, and ferns. Again a little higher, and we reach the summit of the pass, a lonely upper world of rich sward, bounded on the left by the splintered peaks of Monte Padon, and on the right by the lower slopes of the Marmolata, which rises directly from the grassy level on which we stand. This is the Piana Fedaja, or Fedaja Alp. A dozen or so of rough wooden chalets are here clustered together, mere cattle refuges and hay-sheds, one of which, being a trifle more air-tight than the rest, is decorated with a colored Christus over the doorway, and serves as a sleeping-place for travelers who are about to make the ascent of the mountain. The rain now abates somewhat of its violence, and, the way being once more level, riding again becomes practicable. Thus we go on, a second and a third great glacier creeping into sight as the first is left behind. These each show a brown margin of moraine, the last glacier being of immense extent, as large apparently as the lower glacier of Grindelwald. While we are yet looking at them, however, a tall, strange, ghost-like mist stalks swiftly across the snow and veils all but the brown rocks abutting on the pass. In a moment the great mountain has melted away, and we see it no more. 
The Fedaha Alp is just the width of the Marmolata, and no more. It begins with the western, and ends with the eastern extremity of the mountain. Here, at the foot of the huge dark rock known as the Pizzeranta, lies an exquisite little dark green tarn, surrounded by a slopes of crimson alp roses. The rain having now ceased for a moment, its waters, ruffled only by the flight of a small brown moorhen, are as placid as a sheet of green glass. Another yard or two of rocky path, and we come to an upright, mossy stone bearing an illegible inscription. This is the ancient boundary stone between Italy and Austria, one of the few divisions left unchanged at the last readjustment of the frontier line. Half of the Marmolata belongs to the House of Habsburg, and half to the Kingdom of Italy. The line of demarcation is ingeniously carried along the topmost ridge of ice glacier, so that, unless by members of the different European alpine clubs, it is not very likely to become a disputed territory. From this point all is descent. Our way lies along a vast green slope, following the course of the Candieri torrent, but running for a long distance upon the brink of a ruinous gully partly choked with yet unmelted snow. For the path on the Candieri side has been lately swept away by a torrent of snow and water from the Marmolata, and the whole mountain slope is here one mass of soft red mud, more slippery than ice, full of pits and fissures, and very difficult. Lower down still the track lies through the rich, park-like pastures deep in wildflowers, so bringing us at last to the upper end of the Sotoguda Gorge. No sooner have we entered the defile than the clouds clear off as if by magic. The sun then bursts out in splendor, lighting up the rocks first on one side and then on the other, according as the ravine winds its narrow way. Our wet garments steam as if hung before a blazing fire. The men take off their coats and carry them on their alpenstocks to dry. The mules prick their ears and rub their noses together, as if whispering to each other that there is a scent of home upon the air and that the old familiar stable cannot surely be far distant. Nor is it, for already we have emerged into the Val Petorina. These green slopes to the left are the slopes of Monte Mignon, those fir woods to the right are the woods of Monte Pesa. Presently come the dilapidated hamlets of Sotoguda and Sorara, then Rocca on its hillside, then the familiar path down by the torrent side and across the wooden bridge, then at last Caprile where a warm welcome awaits us, a heap of English letters, and a rest. End of section 28